Hi, my name is Craig Hendricks, and I've been going to Rolling Hills for about 10 years now, and I get the privilege to serve alongside my wife, Jen, uh, in the middle school ministry. I'm Jen, and I'm the middle school pastor at Rolling Hills. So Craig and I met um, the summer of 2013. We were both interning at the church. I was a year-long um, intern, and then he was coming in for the summer from school. First couple weeks home, I went on a mission trip to D.C., and I remember talking to uh, some of the other interns who had got to work with Jen, and they were telling me all about how fun Jen was and how you need to meet her. And I just remember thinking that I definitely needed to meet this girl as soon as I got home. And so the first Sunday back from, uh, from that missions trip, I went right up to her and I introduced myself, and uh, we've been best friends ever since. So we decided today about a year after meeting, really quickly on, we realized whether or not we were going to be able to make communication a priority, um, whether or not that trust was going to be there. We've had a lot of mentors here at Rolling Hills over the years, and um, they've really been able to instill in us um, you know, this idea of setting boundaries and how um, in their own relationships and in their own marriages, how setting boundaries have, have just been so crucial in, in such a, a happy and, and long-lasting marriage. And, and being on the other side of that now, too, it's, it's definitely, we can see it as well, um, where having those boundaries, um, you know, makes our, our, our connection to each other more intimate and more special than if we hadn't have waited before marriage. Now, I think culture is all about this um, instant gratification and not, and just doing everything that you want right now, you know, making, making yourself happy right now. God laid it out for us so clearly, and in doing so and being faithful to Him, we see that He has blessed our marriage so well. That's what really um, created so much joy in our marriage, and, and again, that connection and, and just that, that special connection that you can't have anywhere else. Well, good morning. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, really excited to be here this morning. My name is T. Lusk, and I'm uh, one of our uh, pastors. I lead our college and young adults ministry um, across all of our campuses. And so uh, Pastor Nick's not here this morning. He is in route or already in Brazil. I can't, I, I don't really know his itinerary. I think he's preaching somewhere uh, in Manaus this morning. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming he's already there. So hopefully, um, hopefully things have gone well for him and uh, and, and that, it's, that he's able to preach God's word uh, with, with some of our family there in, in Manaus. And you can pray for him this week as some of our other pastors and, and, and teachers and leaders in the church are going to Brazil to, to do what we call a pastor's conference uh, with some folks there in, um, in, in the Amazon jungle. And so it's, it's going to be an incredible week, incredible week where they get to teach and, and facilitate classes on how to lead student ministry and kids ministry and pastoral ministry uh, and, and then learn from them about how they're doing those things in these villages along the Amazon River. And so certainly pray for him. Uh, he, he left me with a pretty incredible passage. He had to travel all the way to Brazil to get away from uh, what we're going to talk about this morning as we turn, continue to work through the story of uh, David in, in the Bible and working through First and Second Samuel. We've seen David come a long way. Uh, this is our seventh week, and over the past several weeks, we've seen David come from the very bottom, kind of defying all odds, right? He began in, in chapter 16 of, of 1 Samuel as the young brother who was forgotten in the fields. And he goes from overseen, basically overlooked to anointed uh, to be the future king of the Israelites. 
And then from there, he, he has all these victories in battle. He faces a giant. And, and then he, this jealousy grows between him and a relationship with Saul, the, the reigning king at the time. There's friendship that grows. And then finally, even last week, as, we, as we've continued in the story, Saul has died. And now David has taken the throne. And his first act as king is this incredible moment of leadership where David brings back the presence of God to the people of God. And then he worships mightily before the Lord. And it's been incredible. If you've been tracking over the past several weeks as we've gone through this series, and even if you just jumped in, the life of David is such a rich story, such a rich narrative, and there's so many things for us to learn from him about the way that we live and we walk with the Lord. And this morning is one of those places where we're reminded that David has flesh and bone just like you and I. That David is a guy, he's a dude. And he, li- he lives life and has the same flesh and blood that we, that we have. And not only do we get to learn from all of his success and his victories and these mighty moments in his life, but we get to learn this morning from a monumental failure. And it's one of my favorite parts about Scripture is that, it, it, that, we, that Scripture is written and, and the stories about the, the men and, and people in Scripture are, are stories not always about their success and their heroism. That sometimes we get to see them in some pretty dark places and some failures. And I don't love that just because it makes me feel better about my own failures. But it reminds me ultimately that David and Moses and Abraham, they're not the heroes of these stories. That God is the hero of the story. And that no matter how bad we've messed up, how messed up our lives are in general... That God can use us, he can restore us and redeem us and use our lives for his glory. And this morning, the the main kind of theme of what I I hope that we can grab hold of, and if you have your worship guide, these are the first three blanks that you can fill out there. The main thing that I want us to grab a hold of is very simple. It's the title of our sermon, but just to really capture it this, this week is to guard our hearts. If there's one overarching thing that we can learn from David in this moment where he fumbles in this, this, this relationship with Bathsheba, it's that we need to guard our hearts. As we jump through and, and work through this passage, I want to just read a little bit of it and then we'll pray together and, and move on and look at a couple different things, a couple warnings that he has uh, for us in this passage and a couple responses that I believe that we can see in Scripture. So this is God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 is the beginning of the story. I'll just read it. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand just in honor of God's word. If you're not, that's fine. We should have the words on the screen here behind me. This is God's word. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, the word that we've sung in in celebration of your great mercy and grace, that you are our cornerstone, that, that your name above all names, that you're the king of our hearts. 
We celebrate the time that we get to sing those things. Father, we celebrate the moments we get to, to fellowship and shake hands and look eye to eye with people that we walk in life with, Lord, that we're reminded as we gather here on Sundays each week that we don't live this life alone, that we have a community of believers that we get to walk with, that when we struggle, we can go to them. When we have things to celebrate, we can celebrate alongside. And Father, I thank you for your word. As Mr. Hollis read it, and as we open it here, God, we can learn from you. We can learn from, from those who have gone before us, these central figures in our faith, and even David, and not only in all of his success, but even in this moment where he fails, we get to learn a lesson. A lesson I pray that we would, we would take heed and hear clearly to guard our hearts. Father, I pray that your spirit would be active as I know it already has been, that it would continue to be. And Father, as a result of our time together here this morning, that our lives would be, would be transformed, and that you would send us out as transformed people by your gospel to share the message of transformation <clears throat> with our community and this culture at large. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We're going to work through a couple of different things, and, and honestly, we're not going to read every verse in this chapter, chapter 11, uh, but really kind of work through the whole story a little bit and learn, really, there's two warnings that I think are very clear as we, as we work through this passage, and then on the, on the backside as we wrap up, I think that there's really two kind of responses that we can have. And if you are tracking along in the worship guide, you can fill out those things there. But the first, we want to work through these two warnings, and the first warning that I think is very clear for us. We said guard our hearts, but listen that we don't, we guard our hearts, we don't follow our hearts. We guard our hearts, we don't follow our hearts. In our, in our culture, in our friends, in our relationships, we're, we're, we hear all the time that just follow your heart. Right, and it's a great thing to write on a Hallmark card. It, it, it makes for a great phrase when you, when you have things that you want to do and, and figure out in life. Just follow your heart. Whatever your heart desires, that's what you should do. But honestly, I believe that God's word is very clear that following our heart can be very detrimental. It can be disastrous, honestly. You see, you see, we see in the passage that David is a man who's let his guard down. He's a great warrior. He's led countless men into battle. They've seen great victories. They've, they've written songs about David. He's a legend among the people of Israel. In fact, at this very moment, not only has he led well, he's led well enough to where the armies can go out to battle without him and they can still have great success. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, they've, they've gone out without King David and they've, they've had victory over the Ammonites. So David is a great leader, but as they've gone out and had this great victory without David, David's in his home, in his palace. He's laid back, he's lounging, he's having a great time, his, this luxurious palace that he's built for himself, and he's just relaxing, taking some time for himself. Listen, I'm not saying anything wrong, there's anything wrong with vacation, like you don't need to cancel your trip to 30A, right? Like, that's not, not what I'm saying, like you don't need to stop going to the mountains and stop enjoying the beauty of all those things and taking a week off here and there. What, what, what the problem with what David does here is he's supposed to be somewhere else and he's not there. It says in the passage that when the, the time for the kings to go out to war was at hand, David wasn't there. David's the king. He finds himself in a place where he's not supposed to be. And David's doing 
what, what God had judged, what God had uh, indicted the Israelites for in the book of Judges, that he's, he's doing whatever's right in his own eyes. He saw that he didn't need to go out. He'd let his guard down. He was following his heart. And just kind of to break, break that phrase apart just a little bit for us, well, what does it mean when we say follow our heart? So let's just start with the word follow. Right? And this is deep stuff for all of us here. When we talk about following, what, what does it imply? It, it, the implication is that I'm going to be led by something or someone else. Right? That I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to yield my right to make, I'm going to, I'm going to be led by something or someone else. But then to follow my heart is according to the Hebrew and Greek culture, which is where, where we would find what we understand in scripture to be the truth of under, of following our hearts. According to the Greek and the Hebrew cultures, what that actually represents is kind of the seat of our emotions. Our feelings, our desires, our emotions, that's the, the location of the heart. And so let's just kind of flesh that out just a little bit to say this. What that means is that if I'm going to follow my heart, that I'm going to let my emotions, my feelings, my desires be what leads me. To follow my heart means that I'm going to let my emotions, my feelings, and my desires be what leads me from day to day. And that can be disastrous, can it? I mean, if you just think about it, if you just kind of work through that, like my feelings, my emotions, my desires, they can change in a moment. Just a phone call can change everything. I have three kids, just a little bit of time of one of them freaking out can change my emotions and my desires. If I'm led by my emotions, by my heart, if I'm going to follow my heart, it can be disastrous. Just let me hit some traffic on the way into town. My emotions, my desires be disaster for me to follow those. That's what our culture tells us as we follow our hearts. But I want to say for, for us this morning, what we learn is that we need to guard our hearts, not follow our hearts. The Bible has a lot to say about the heart. It mentions it over 300 times in the scripture and not all of it is good. Listen to this, what it says in Jeremiah. It says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus points out the fallen condition of our hearts outside of a relationship with him when he says this in the book of Mark. It says, from within, out of, the, out of a heart of a man comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Listen, if we want to really understand the, the, the gravity of this guarding our hearts, not being led by our hearts, not following our hearts, the reality is that our hearts will lead us in some pretty horrible places. Not only will your emotions change, but you can teach, you can tell yourself, you can, you can teach yourself or, or make yourself believe that the right thing to do is what your heart tells you to do, and it can lead you down some really, really rough paths. Scripture seems to be clear for us. We don't guard, we don't follow our hearts. We guard our hearts. It's be clear because temptation is a never-ending battle. That at every turn, there's going to be temptation for us. It's the second thing you can fill out there. Temptation is a never-ending battle. One pastor says it this way, that David was, was in the bed and not in the battle. When David was supposed to be at war, he was in the bed. He was not at the battle. 
And it's precisely in those moments when, when we don't go to battle that we feel like there's not a war still raging around us. But there was a war still raging around David. He had let his guard down. And the enemy was very clear on David's weaknesses. David thought the battle was, was a long way away where his, where, his, where his armies were fighting the Ammonites. But the battle was raging right outside of his window. And it took the form of a woman who was bathing on a roof. Temptation is a never-ending battle. And David realized that in this passage. Not only do we have temptation as a never-ending battle, but we have an enemy that is clear and understands who we are and our emotions. Listen to what it says in John chapter 10. It says that we have an enemy who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. It doesn't sound like somebody who wants the best for us, does it? That's why God implores us in his word. And written in First Peter, it says, Be sober-minded and watchful, meaning guard your mind and your heart. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Temptation often follows those moments when we experience a great deal of success. When we feel like we can put it on autopilot, when we let our guard down, and begin to taste that freedom of following our hearts. Temptation seems to always be right there with us. And this didn't happen just overnight for David. So it kind of gets into our backyard. It doesn't happen just overnight for David. There were some cracks in the surface of David's heart before this moment in chapter 11. There were some moments in the, in the previous chapters in the story and the narrative of David's life where, where he had grown in power. And his chest puffs out and he begins to think it's more about himself than the God who gave him that victory. There's those moments where he follows his heart. There's cracks, little cracks in his character where he follows his heart and he increases the number of concubines and wives that he has. And there's all of this, this following his heart that's happening and those little cracks that are in, his, in that shell of his heart are happening way before this moment. You see, David didn't get up that afternoon planning on becoming an adulterer and a conspirator and a murderer. Sin seldom shows itself in that way, but this is... As one, one author says, but once sin grips us, one temptation grips us, it'll take us to places that we never intended to go and hold us there longer than we intended to stay. Temptation is a never-ending battle and no one is immune to falling. What wakes us up, what, what, what were those moments, where I'm sure that you can probably recall CEOs and leaders and political figures, sadly even pastors who have had these moral failures. And, and, and what this passage reminds us of is, is that we're not above the same falling. This week as I was reading through our daily steps and over the summer we've been reading through the book of Psalms and it's been so interesting to a couple, couple of study of David's life with reading basically his journal. Not all of the Psalms are written by David, but a bulk of them are. And so you get to read the heart of this man that we're, that we're learning about. And some of the things as I'm reading this week, it was, it's hard to wrap my mind around that the same guy that I'm reading here that calls out to the Lord in such desperation, that celebrates with such joy, is the same man that falls so miserably in this passage. It reminds me, and hopefully it reminds all of us that we latch on and we guard our hearts. We don't follow our hearts because no one is immune to this kind of falling. 
that we hear the words that God gives us that Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. That warning for us. Listen to this warning that, that there's a war that's raging around us. That, that it's not just in sexual temptation as this passage seems to focus on. The war rages around our hearts and money and jealousy and success for pride, for possessions, for approval. There's a war that's raging in our hearts. And none of us are above or immune to the falling into that temptation, into that sin. One pastor, a guy named Tim Keller, says this, that the seed of the most terrible possible atrocities, the, cap the capability of the worst possible deeds lives in every human heart, even the best people, even people who have been converted by God. I said it, it's not just a warning about sexual sin, but... Obviously, I think if we are studying this passage about David and Bathsheba, we, we can't leave this passage without addressing that, without addressing sexual sin with some level of integrity. We have, to, we have to address what's here. The battle of sin rages in all of these different places, but this passage obviously wants, to, wants us to, to, to address a part of of this life that we live in, the, in our culture and, and how we've been flooded in so many ways in our neighborhoods and our offices and our homes with the temptation of sin. There's no argument that one of the leading causes for divorce in our, in our society today is infidelity. Probably one of the most common cited reasons why there's divorce because of in, infidelity is that they cite this emotional disconnection with that partner. That at some point there, there seems to be this, this, un, this feeling of, of unappreciativeness or loneliness or sadness that, that, that infiltrates the relationship. And it doesn't happen overnight. And when you trace back the root of that, a lot of times being in pastoral ministry, what I see a lot of times in conversations with couples who find themselves in this place where infidelity is now wrecking their marriage, what they find is the root of that is some time that's been spent consuming pornography. I tell you, time and time again, I have conversations with men and women, and you just ask that question, so when did you start looking at pornography? It's like you read their, their mail, but the honest, the truth is, it's just so obvious that that's what it always leads back to. Not always, but most often. And the numbers are staggering. Barna, the Barna Group and Covenant Eyes did research that, that says this, that the, porn, the pornography industry... The annual revenue of the pornography industry is greater than the NFL, the NBA, and, the major, and Major League Baseball combined. Last year, those three combined made over $26 billion. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than ABC, CBS, and NBC combined. That the estimates last year is that this industry made upwards of $96 billion. It's a huge problem in our society. But let's bring it a little bit closer to home that 46% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. A problem in their home. 56% of American, American divorces involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic material or websites. 68% of church-going men 
view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christians between 18 and 24 years old, 76% actively view pornography on a regular basis. 33% of women aged 25 and under search at least once a month. If you do some other research, the average age of someone who's first exposed to this kind of material for a young man is about 8 to 10 years old. Which blows my mind because I have boys in that age. And that before the age of 18, something like 80% of young ladies are exposed to that kind of material. And more than 80% of that exposure happens not voluntarily. It's a huge problem in our society. It's one when I say, don't follow your heart, guard your heart. Don't guard your heart, don't follow your heart. Why? Because obviously we're not guarding our hearts, we're following it and the desires that it's leading to is detrimental. You're like, I'm not married yet, it doesn't matter. Eight to ten years old, it's starting a cycle that you're never going to get out of. It's going to keep you there longer than you mean to be there. When I say you're never going to get out of that, I don't mean that. It's going to keep you there longer than you mean to be there. And it's going to do destructive things to your relationships. This is the second what happens when we find that, when we begin walking in those places where we're, not, we're following our hearts, not guarding our hearts, is that, we, that, that fleeting pleasure, that satisfaction or that acceptance, that strength or excitement that we seek, it only lasts for a moment. And then we figure out, we have to figure out a way to conceal that sin, to hide it, to convince ourselves that it doesn't hurt anybody else and that loneliness and that failure and that shame that we thought that moment of pleasure would satisfy then becomes our accuser and tells us that we'll never escape. It causes loneliness and despair and shame. And so the second warning for us is not only do we guard our hearts, not follow our hearts, but we guard our hearts and don't conceal sin. We guard our hearts and we don't conceal sin. What happens in verse 3 that David came to know all too well that fleeting pleasure of sin as, as, as Bathsheba knocks, up at the, knocks at the door with a pregnancy test and a blue line on it. That moment of pleasure now becomes very, very real. And so he has to figure out what he's going to do. He's going to think on his feet. What, what is he, what is he going to do? It's a, the, an old story of uh, Winston Churchill says that he was a master of thinking on his feet. That one moment he was standing in a crowd of people beside a stranger and some ladies are coming down uh, the stairs and he looks at the gentleman standing next to him and he says, that has got to be the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Stranger, mind you. The stranger says to Winston Churchill, sir, that's my wife. To which he responds, no, 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 not that woman. The other woman is the one I was referring to. And he says, well, sir, that's my daughter. And without missing a beat, again, to this stranger, he looks at the man and says, ma'am, have you seen my glasses? It's funny. It's a joke. I'm trying to illustrate something there. You can think on your feet, right? Those moments where, where you, can call, you can cover a blunder for just a moment. And David, what he wants to do is think on his feet. In verse 3, he finds out that his whole world is possibly going to crash down around him because this sin, this moment of pleasure is coming to light and it's not going to be easily hidden. 
And so what does he do? In verse 3, he calls to Joab and he says, I want you to send me Uriah. Or excuse me, verse 6, he calls to Joab and he says, I want you to send me Uriah. And so Uriah arrives, arrives from the battlefront. And remember, Uriah is one of David's mighty men. And there's this army of people that David has. This, this is one of his 30 strongest fighters. He knows Uriah. They're friends. They've been through battles together. So he calls him home, and it's got to be this awkward moment where he asks some things about what's happening on the battlefront, which David already knows because Joab has already sent messengers. And why would you even bring one of your greatest special forces men back from the battlefront to find out things that messengers could tell you? But David has a plan. He wants to cover a blunder. And he asks some random questions, and then he says, why don't you go home? Take some rest. Take the night off. Spend it with your wife. And you can just see him, just the, the wheels turning. This will cover my spot. This will conceal my sin. But it doesn't work because Uriah is an honorable man and he sleeps on the footsteps of the palace rather than going home to see his wife. And David is blown away. See, because Uriah is a righteous man. He's pledged his loyalty not only to David but to God. And he says, I'm not going to act in a way that's dis, dishonest or, 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 or disobedient to, the, to the, the values that I have as a warrior. None of my other men would be able to come home and spend the night with his wife. And so while, David, while, while Uriah is thinking about being righteous, David's thinking about how he can continue to make this happen. And he figures out that he'll get him drunk. He just conceals and conceals. Just trying to figure out how he can cover his sin. So he gets him drunk, thinking he'll lure his inhibitions and surely he'll go home and be with his wife. He can cover it this way. But again, even in that moment where he where he maybe has a little bit too much to drink, he falls asleep in the palace, and David can't figure out what he's going to do. And so in verse 14, he writes a letter to Joab, the commander who's at war. He seals that and he puts it in Uriah's hand and he sends him back to the battlefronts. And basically the, re the letter says, listen, Uriah, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. I want you to attack the city and pull back so that you know that he'll die. And in verse 18 or verse 16 or so, Joab does exactly what David asked him to do and Uriah dies. In verse 18, he sends back a message a message that tells David that, the, that they've lost a battle and some of the men are, have died and Uriah the Hittite is among those men. And you can almost hear in David's voice him wiping his hands of the situation. In verse 25, he says this. He tells the messenger with this news, say to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Just let that settle in for a second. In this attempt to conceal a moment of sin where he lowers his guard, he doesn't, he follows his heart rather, guard, rather than guarding his heart. He puts in one of his most trusted men a letter that is basically his death sentence. He sends him off to war. And when he gets back, ultimately really what he says, when he gets the word that that man who he's loved and spent time with is dead, he says in this cold and distant response to Joab, you win some and you lose some. People die in war. Keep your head up and fight another day. That's, that's this shepherd psalmist. 
who we read and we celebrate. And he's as cold as ice over the adultery and murder and the covering up of the sin that he's committed. And what we see is that when sin, when sin grows and leads to more sin, when we leave it alone, when we don't stamp it out, it grows and it leads to more sin. It's a warning that we, that we, we have to guard our hearts and not follow our hearts and guard our hearts by, by not concealing sin because sin grows and leads to more sin when we try to conceal it. And it doesn't matter what it is, if it's lust or greed or jealousy or covetingness or covetousness or disobedience to your parents, if it's cheating or, or being dishonest to your boss or your friends, it doesn't matter what it is. When we conceal it, it grows and leads to more sin. If you follow what happens for David, he looked and he lusted and then he took. Let's just get this straight. David's not some pervert. David's not some weird guy who, who's this peeping Tom that's creeping out on his, on his palace footsteps and is going to end up on Dateline this, this weekend. He's the king of Israel. And what happens on this moment doesn't just happen that in, this, in this moment. It's, it happens because of those cracks in his character and those cracks in his, in, in his guarding of his heart. When he steps out on that rooftop and he sees her, that wasn't the sin. He had this chance in that moment to step back into his house and close the windows and run to the Lord. But he didn't. He lingered and he watched. And then he inquired, hey, who, who is that lady? Why don't you go get her and bring her here? How often do, is that exactly what we do when we have this righteous idea of what, we, of what we see? We want to dig in a little bit more, but it's all sin. David doesn't see those temptations and see them as roadblocks. Pastor Jeff said this week, as we were preparing, he says, what we feed grows and what we starve dies. Oh, that was right on. It's a 17th century British theologian uh, that, that writes this, a guy named John Owen says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And just stomp it out before it becomes a forest fire. Stomp the spark out before it becomes a forest fire. Crush the acorn before it becomes a, an oak tree. Listen, we've got to see it in those moments and stop concealing it because it's going to grow. And what it grows into is something that's disastrous and destructive. We've got to stop thinking that we can do what nobody else has ever been able to do and conceal our sin. We've got to confess it to the Lord. Hebrews tells us this. What, what incredible words that Hebrews, that the writer of Hebrews gives us. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who, who we must give account. We starve sin and it will die. We crush it, stamp it out. We kill it or it will kill us. It'll destroy us. We don't say all of this to leave us in a, in a hopeless place because there's great hope. Listen to what, what God says in, in these moments. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's some haunting words at the end of this chapter in verse 27. It says, but the things that David had done displeased the Lord. He didn't conceal it. God saw it. 
And next week we'll see as, as Pastor Chase is here and how God unearths that and how God deals with that and the power of repentance and redemption and restoration that comes when we confess our sins. But we don't have to wait until next week to confess because Christ did die for us. We could come to him. We don't want to keep concealing. We want to confess our sin. And there's two just real quick responses that I think are, are, are good for us to hear as we process what God is doing in our hearts. And maybe this, this, his word this morning is, is, is piercing parts of your heart. Don't try to conceal it. It hasn't been concealed since day one. Confess. And if in response, maybe there's two things that I want to encourage you to do. If you've been around me for long enough, the first one is going to be something that you've heard me say a thousand times, and I hope that you hear, it, hear me say it a thousand times more. Listen, don't, you guard your heart. You guard your heart by hiding his word there. You want to guard your heart by hiding God's word there. One of the greatest ways for us to guard our hearts is by hiding God's word in our heart. If David would have just listened to what he had already said in Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And if you want to guard your heart against sin, then you hide God's word in your heart because God's word makes you sensitive to his ways so that you see that temptation and you can run from it. I can tell you just this from this week and, and the previous weeks when I've been able to preach and, and work through these passages together, every time I'm working through a passage, it's like God opens my eyes to those places where I would fall into temptation to sin. And this week it has been so heightened. Why? Because I've been spending time meditating and memorizing and studying God's word. And so those moments when I would be tempted to sin in, in ways uh, with, with, with my eyes, God has opened my eyes, not because he shames me, but because he loves me. And he says, no, run, guard your heart from that sin. It's been amazing this, this week specifically. The way that God in his grace has opened my eyes to those moments and I can run away from that temptation and run to him and take my refuge in him and know that my enemy does not get the victory. The second response that I feel like is very clear for us in this passage is that we guard our hearts by following Jesus. We guard our hearts by following Jesus. You want to guard your heart from sin then walk in obedience to God's word. Hide, your, hide his word there and then walk in obedience to it. Guard your heart by following Jesus. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Walk in obedience to his word and his way. As we read and study and meditate, he reveals how he would have us live and what's great, greatest for us. And here's the greatest part of it. It tells us that he's given us everything for life and godliness. That by his spirit dwelling inside of those, those of us who have put our faith in him, he puts his spirit inside of us and he's working through in, in our spirits to give us the strength to walk away from that temptation. So this, the responses for, for us this morning is, is first that we guard our heart by hiding his word there. We guard our heart by following Jesus. And this morning, listen, if you don't have a relationship with him, I want to tell you this, that this is your response this morning, that you guard your heart by giving your heart to Jesus. 
If you look at your life and you say, no, my, my life is too messed up. This is, this is a man who committed adultery with one of his best friend's wives. He murdered him and he tried to conceal that sin. And God used him and calls him even today a man after his own heart. Why? Because he ran to him in repentance. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. If you don't have a relationship with him, you can guard your heart by giving it to Jesus. So this morning, we're going to have just one response song and just give this as, a, as an opportunity for us just to work through whatever God's dealing with you in your heart. Whatever it is that he's moving in your heart, we'll sing just a portion of this song together. And, and this is your time of response. If you need to sit down and stay where you're see, seated, then sit down and stay where you're seated. If you need to stand up and raise your hands and call out to the same God that David called out to who forgave him and gave him victory and, and, and forgave him of his sins, and you can call out to that Savior. If you need to talk to someone, listen, this is one of those moments where some of you may need to spend some time confessing sin to somebody, and, and I'm here. You can email me. I don't think we have that up on the screen, but you can email me. You can talk to, to Pastor, Pastor Nick, even though he's in Brazil. I'm sure there's going to be moments where he can have the time where he can set up a conversation with you so that you can talk about those things. But don't keep concealing it. Let's kill that sin. Let's, let's get you with somebody who can begin to work with you on what it means to walk in holiness and fullness. Let's guard our hearts. Let's guard our hearts and, and pray with me. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that your word is so clear and it gives us this calling to guard our hearts and that you give us the strength to do so. You, you let us guard our hearts by running to you, by taking refuge in you, by putting your word in our hearts, by following you, and you equip us to follow you with your spirit. God, you have given us everything that we need to live the life that you've called us to live. God, may we be faithful to that life. And Father, if there are those this morning that are, in, that are here that need to confess that sin, I, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to your gracious arms open wide to receive them that that shame and that guilt can be wiped away by the blood that was spilt on a cross. For those who don't have a relationship with you, Father, I pray that their hearts would be guarded this morning and that they would give their heart to you. Their lives would be transformed by a relationship with you as they put their faith in you, believing that you can transform their heart. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.